Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. A little Janelle Monet, isn't it? All right. So uh, welcome back from your holidays. Uh, we're back from our holidays, too. Uh, we're excited about the week ahead, and we'll tell you a little bit more about that later in the show. But we want to plunge right in here uh, with an initial segment here on The Scramble. And, you know, one of the things that we tend to do as Americans is focus, hyper-focus, on our side of any question. So there's certainly certainly been a lot of coverage and a lot of discussion about the fact that uh, the Russian government, Russian intelligence, uh, seemed to have an interest in a certain outcome uh, of our national election, uh, did what they could by way of hacking uh, to make that outcome happen. Uh, there's been a fair amount of coverage about the relationship between uh, Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump, uh, a little bit less coverage about what Donald Trump's other business connections uh, to Russians and to Russia may be. But the one thing we tend not to do because we have a little bit of a, a weird uh, home focus is talk about what Vladimir Putin might ultimately want out of all this. And by all this, I don't just simply mean the outcome of this election or the U.S. government, but what's Vladimir Putin's long game? What does he want to get uh, out of the world that he is attempting to shape in various ways? And so to help us understand that is someone who has written uh, eloquently and thoughtfully about this uh, recently. That's Molly McHugh, writer, foreign policy and strategy consultant and an information warfare expert. She's uh, spent time uh, advising uh, governments uh, in Georgia and uh, I think advising also the former Moldovan prime minister. Uh, She is no stranger to the uh, areas that sort of represent kind of, uh, how would we describe this, kind of the frontier outside Russia. So um, uh, she has written about this recently, and we want to talk to her about it. And so here she is. Welcome to our conversation. Thanks for having me. So one of the ways to talk about Vladimir Putin, and one of the ways that I think you do very effectively in your article, in some ways it's easier to talk about what he doesn't want than it is to talk about what he does want. And it seems that you argue that what he doesn't want is an organized international opposition. He doesn't like things like NATO and and the EU. He'd like to see whatever forces exist in opposition to his will kind of scattered and disorganized with no major leader. Is that fair to say? That's definitely um, a good way to think about it. Um, I think this is the hardest part for the West, however you want to describe that, to understand what Russia's ultimate objectives are, because there's still um, an effort to look at them rebuilding a pro-Russian bloc or a new Warsaw Pact or any sort of alignment uh, like like the former structures that they used. Um, and that's really not the goal. The goal is to uh, take everything apart and create this sort of permanent fluctuating structure of instability and shift alliances um, in which uh, the United States of America and the possibilities of American power would be much more limited and much more weakened. All right. So we have to back up a little bit, or you do back up in the uh, in the article and talk about it in a way that I think most Americans haven't thought about it for a while, which is that um, you're really sort of looking at a very different kind of Russian government, a Russian government that began organi- organizing itself during the 1990s as a security state, uh, as opposed to anything that had a conventional political apparatus 
Protestant that we, we, we might recognize even from other countries that we deal with. This really was uh, the Soviet, the old Soviet Union's uh, security apparatus reorganizing itself, renaming itself, and then more or less making it interchangeable with the actual government. Is that is that a reasonable statement? Yeah, that's right. It's um, I think, again, it's one of these hard things for us to understand. I think there is broad understanding that the 90s, the period when President Yeltsin was sort of trying to build a more liberal democratic Russia, is largely viewed as a failure by most Russians because of the economic crisis and sort of the societal collapse, the perception that they had lost their great power status in the world. Um, but the the point that I think we need to understand more is the transition of power in on New Year's Eve 1999 between Yeltsin and Putin um, was a carefully engineered moment. And that really was the rise of the Russian security state to take over the political power of the country as well. Um, and it was really the moment when they shook off the final constraints of anything to their objective to take over the country. They no longer had a Soviet political council overseeing them or a, an elected government structure. They became the government structure. And that does give them uh, tremendous power in the way that they work in the world. One of the sentences in your article that gives one chills is, today, as a result, Russia is little more than a ghastly hybrid of an overblown police state and a criminal network with an economy the size of Italy, Dash, and the world's largest nuclear arsenal. So, but but the point that you make simultaneously is that for for Putin and for this this apparatus, because in fact probably it has still has a little bit of the mentality uh, of a police slash security apparatus plus espionage. It's you know some of it is what you do out there in the physical world with real estate, but more of it you argue is controlling information about what you do that that somehow or other um, controlling what people know and how they think about what you do is almost as important, maybe even more important than the thing itself you do? Uh, yeah, I think I think that's very much true. And I think the Russians have become kind of the kings of what we like to call disinformation, but it's, it's really a much more subtle thing. It's this um, permanent subversion of our ability to understand truth or um, sort of any initiatives in clear ways, which gives them tremendous power. Um, and I think um, they do work in these sort of shadow ways. And this is the war. I mean, this really is a moment for us, like, the, you know, the Revolutionary War, where people stopped lining up and shooting each other in straight lines. This is the kind of transition point we're in, in terms of how we think about war and security and how to fight those things. Um, this is a new kind of hybrid warfare, which the Russians mostly refer to as nonlinear warfare. It's very carefully detailed in the Gerasimov Doctrine, which was written in 2014, um, but it is the use of every element of state power, whether it be diplomacy or economy or criminal networks that are affiliated with the FSB or cultural networks or the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, all of these things, including state media, are aligned toward achieving Russian objectives, um, and they have very clear political objectives in the world. And that's why in the piece, the, the phrase that I use is the global imperialist insurgency to describe what Putin is trying to achieve, because it is sort of both aspects. It's the use of state power of every aspect of state power, but in a very disruptive way that is geared toward upheaval. There's so much about this that I, I want to talk to you about. Um, we're talking to Molly McHugh right now. The piece ran in uh, Politico magazine. Um, 
Well, one thing that we we need to talk about is sort of how this is perceived by the states contiguous to and near to uh, Russia. We saw over the weekend, uh, this has been reported before, but there are, in fact, special forces uh, units in places like Estonia and Latvia uh, where they're they're terrified. Uh, They feel as though... Uh, the borders uh, are not safe. Uh, I think you have in your piece, I think, a guy from Estonia who's what? He's bought a boat so he could get his family out uh, when the Russians invade and, and he's going to stay behind and organize the resistance. And this isn't some kind of conspiracy freak. This is somebody who's pretty well plugged into the dissident apparatus there. Yeah, just a totally normal guy who makes movies most of the time. Um, I think uh, one thing I would say about that New York Times piece is I think the characterization that the special forces uh, from the region are terrified of what's coming uh, is not fair. I think um, there are, especially in Estonia, very capable local uh, special operators who are U.S. trained and U.S. partners in other countries. Um, And yes, they are very real and clear-eyed about what the threat is from Russia, but they have very clear plans. And that's why our guys are there helping them to build those plans in terms of internal security, internal resilience and um, the ability to resist. I think, you know, the problem is, um, as I said in the piece, you know, the we sort of yearn for this fight that we can still win with guns. Uh, We know how to fight those wars. If tanks come, we know what to do. We call it a war and we fight. Um, It's the rest of this, the shadow warfare, the subtle influence in politics, the subtle subversion of economic structures, the capture of media. Um, the use of cultural resources, all of this is very hard for us to see, especially from the West, because we just don't think of things the same way. And it's like this insidious, creeping use of power. Um, But it is important for us to identify it for what it is and to stop calling it gray. It's very black and white what the Russians are doing and what their objectives are. So I want to come back to in a second to what they are doing, what their objectives are. But one question I guess I have is, is this partly something they learned from their own experience in places like Afghanistan? I mean, maybe one reason they they don't want to be in a protracted war against well-organized special forces uh, and and resistance groups in in any of the areas in, in a Baltic area or something like that is they know what that's like, that it can go on for a really long time and cost a lot of money. It's a hell of a lot cheaper probably to do the kind of stuff you're talking about. It's absolutely more cost effective to fight political wars and hybrid wars uh, than it is to fight an open war. Um, The Russians have invested tremendous amounts of money um, and uh, other resources into revitalizing their armed forces and building their own enormous special forces capability. Um, The last few years, especially since the annexation of Crimea and using the war in Syria, have really been a gigantic arms expo around the edges of NATO. Um, And the Russians are now selling more weapons primarily to anti-American countries um, and forces uh, than they ever have before. Um, And I think that aspect has really been overlooked. But, um, you know, in many in many ways, they're pushing forward with the development of new capabilities that we're running to catch up on. Um, And we need to pay more attention to that, especially in terms of nuclear arsenals. So in some ways, if Vladimir Putin could have like gone into a laboratory and designed an American president who would be helpful to him in certain ways, he couldn't have done a whole lot better than Donald Trump, right? Trump is is kind of what he wants in the sense that one of the things he doesn't want is for the U.S. to identify itself as the leader uh, of a group of Western nations uh, opposed to a lot of the things that Russian, Russia wants to do. The, the, the thing that would really be troubling to him is the, if the U.S., continued to be or or became what it has always been, which is the leading voice first among equals in a group of democracies uh, very opposed to Russia. 
Yeah, it, it's the the United States has been the steel inside a very strong structure for a long time. Um, and that's not to say we can do it alone. Uh, we benefit a lot from our relationships with NATO and our European alliances and elsewhere as well. Um, but that's exactly right. I think uh, Russia realizes this, and they had uh, good illustrations of this during the Obama years in particular, um, where there was sort of this push to have the Europeans lead, you know, the Europeans should lead in NATO, the Europeans should lead on Libya. Um, but in the moments where the U.S. was absent, uh, it was a very different dynamic, a very different sense of security. Um, and sort of across the region during the reset, I think from our side, our diplomats um, don't see what the cost of the Obama era reset was. And if you're in Estonia or Georgia or Moldova or in, or in Ukraine or any of these other countries that are sort of right at the front, um, it's a dozen or more small decisions that we didn't think of as significant in terms of how we were dealing with our bilateral allies because we were making compromises to, in theory, improve our relations with Russia um, that left them feeling exposed um, in ways that they had not for the last 50 years. And um, this is something very significant to think through. Um, but we need to be there. We need to have uh, we need to have relationships where our allies come first, where we're clear about what the threat from Russia is to all of us, um, and stop feeling like because we're across the Atlantic, maybe we have a little bit of a buffer zone. Um, I mean, yes, it's fair to say that if the Russians were going to write a comic book and have a takeover of the United States, something like Trump might be helpful. Um, but it, I think they're as potentially nervous about Trump and his policies as some of us are. Um, he's not well-defined. He is unpredictable. And that's uh, something very significant to understand, especially for Trump, that gives him an advantage if he chooses to use it instead of continuing to sort of parrot these bizarre uh, statements from Putin and um, other things. Right. I think it was your article that, I mean, I, I think this is a, a level of hopefulness that I'm unable to share with you. But I, I think you, you pointed out correctly that a tremendous strategic move for Trump would be to say, you know what, they did they did try to influence the election. They did they did all these things. You know, um, I'm still the president. Nothing changes. But that's the reality. All of that stuff is true. And we have to get serious about that. And, and just maybe in a way that only Nixon could go to China, maybe only Trump could really say, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about and we're not going to put up with it anymore. The, the problem is he just doesn't seem temperamentally or intellectually disposed to say anything like that? Well, I think on the first point, yes, I think that's exactly right. Um, I wouldn't say that I'm hopeful. I would say that I have no choice but to hope that this is something he will consider. Um, it's critical. I, I, this is the war. This is the greatest threat to the United States of America. Our intelligence services see it. Our military apparatus sees it. And if he chooses to ignore that assessment, then he better give us a really good reason for why it is seen as a less of a priority for him. Um, but he is the American president. And the power in what Russia does is in capturing everyone into their subversion and their lies and buying silence. And if he blows that up, then the potential to actually act against a corrosive, toxic, ambitious regime in Russia is tremendous. And he can absolutely use that. For people who are sitting on this side of the Atlantic think, saying, well, what does she mean? What does Molly McHugh mean when this is the biggest threat? How is it the biggest threat to us if it went unchecked for five or seven years? What would be different here in the United States? What's your answer to that? 
Um, I think, uh, you know, the best answer is looking from 2008 until now, when Russia has been acting more unchecked in how it, it operates across Europe, certainly against the United States and our other allies, and in other places in the world as well. Um, the the change in dynamics between 2008 and now is significant. Our, our alliances are, are more uncertain. Um, they're slower to make decisions. They're slow to respond to the greatest threats to Europe, to ourselves, to others. Um, this is not just because of Russia. It's because of other factors as well. But Russia has been very smart in how they operate in this space. If we have another four years of this or another eight years of this, we will be looking at a very different dynamic. We're rebuilding or relaunching the structures that we rely on to protect the United States, certainly, but but our allies and the, the sort of core world order that we count on as well, um, will be almost impossible. We have to do this now. I think, you know, one of the arguments you make, and it's probably a hard one for people to digest a little bit, but is that uh, we need we need to think of this as another Cold War, that, in fact, one way to, to talk about the thing that we just talked about is to say that, yes, we went through something like this, where their ideology and our ideology were constantly rubbing against each other like fairly hostile tectonic plates, um, and that, you know, there weren't that many shots fired there, there weren't that, you know, this was more something that was worked out in a very cold way. Uh, and that ultimately we prevailed. And you say, if we think about it that way, and we're willing to think about it that way, and we understand we're already in the second Cold War, we can win the second Cold War. I don't know if you want to elaborate on that. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, this is a very controversial point that I've been fighting with friends about for at least a year. Um, the same as my claim that the liberal world order is basically already done. But um, I think it's the framework that we can start with to understand the fight that we're in. Um, where it has to be the sort of total war response effort where the you know our elements of power, our elements of intelligence um, also need to collaborate more holistically on understanding what the war is and what the threats to America are. And I think you know one of the best ways to, to understand how far behind we are on this is if you sit in Moscow and Moscow is in the middle of your map and you look out, you know, Syria is one front in a war and Ukraine is another front in the war. And in between, there's a lot of other stuff happening, but it's one war. And everything that they're doing is geared toward winning that war. And those are both very hot wars where a lot of people are being killed, more so in Syria, obviously. But, um, you know, this is this is operated as one war. And we don't even see it that way. Our people rarely sit together and look at it that way. We have sort of CENTCOM and we have Europe operations and they don't sit together and think about, um, especially on if you include diplomats and aid and media and everything else, nobody sits together and looks at these as one conflict. Um, and until we can do that, until we can actually see what the threat is together and develop a response together, we're really far behind in even understanding what our options are to counter um, Russian activities. So, Molly, uh, you say that uh, in looking at President Obama's response uh, to the hacking and the, act, the political activities of Russian intelligence in this country, uh, his response, uh, which was to act against uh, two intelligence agents and expel some uh, diplomats, maybe seize some assets, seems kind of old school, like something out of maybe Bridge of Spies or something. What, what would have been a more uh, <laughs> what would have been a more sort of 2017 way to deal with this? Well, I do think, um, to be clear, I do think the steps that uh, the White House took uh, this past week were very important um, because there does need to be a response. I think beginning to expose the fact that Russia sort of hides all these quote unquote diplomats 
um, everywhere when it's mostly GRU and FSB and in other intelligence and special forces or uh, uh, secret, excuse me, security service agents. Um, it's important to start understanding that and to giving others the ability to to start expelling these people as well. Um, so it is an important step. That being said, um, it's not enough. And uh, there needs to be much more aggressive actions taken. Um, the fact that the White House sort of came out and said, oh, we're considering a cyber response to the Russian cyber attacks. Why on earth would you ever announce that? Either take a step or don't. But don't say you might take a step. Um, it's just sort of ridiculous. And um, But there are all these other measures. It's just that we don't operate the same way. Um, and partially for legal reasons, partially for other reasons, but we need to build a framework in which we can better weaponize and utilize um, all of the agents of, or the elements of power in our arsenal, or we cannot fight this Gerasimov-style warfare. It's just impossible. I believe during the summer, the president actually used the phrase, cut it out, uh, gu guaranteed <laughs> to strike fear into the heart of the FSB. Absolutely. Um, so, um, so another question, and this came up in a very interesting way earlier today on a, on a different public radio show on, on On Point, is the one that I haven't thought that much about is what are Donald Trump's other relationships with Russia? If we go back to that uh, way that you've sketched it out, Russia is little more than a, a hybrid of an overblown police state and a criminal network with an economy the size of Italy. So the question that was asked on, asked on On Point that I thought was great was, do we really know, because we don't have Donald Trump's tax returns, we have limited amount of financial data about him. We don't, for example, know how he got out of some of the debt problems that he's in. For all we know, he actually could have substantial financial obligations to Russian oligarchs or people connected to Russian oligarchs. So is part of the problem that we just don't have a clear view even of who Donald Trump is vis-a-vis -vis all of Russia? I think that's right. Um, I I don't I, I wish I had, you know, secret insider information about these things that could be shared. Um, I think a lot of people have small pieces of it and nobody has a very clear view. I think he's been very opaque about his relationships, either on purpose or to create this sort of perception that he has these magical relationships. Um, it's really hard to know. And, and he doesn't intend to clarify them as far as I can tell. Um, and again, that just gives the Russians more power. So I'm not sure why he's choosing to pursue that course. But um, I think it, it is important to clarify these things. If he does, uh, it, at the very least, it's important for us to understand and for everybody looking at this issue from the United States to understand Russian money is an enormous element of their power. It's how they buy complicity. It's how they buy silence. It's how they buy advocates. But in many cases, it's not buying advocates. It's just buying silence. And you see it in D.C. as well. The way the Russians spread around money using their state banks and their oligarchs and this guy and that guy and whatever other interest. Um, but it's all Kremlin money. Um, the way they spread money to law firms and lobbying firms and think tanks and others to sort of uh, conflict them out of working against Russia, even if they're not explicitly working for Russia. A lot of times these oligarchs pay these huge retainers. They don't want anything. They just want you not to do anything else. Um, and understanding that the money is this corrosive... Uh, unbelievable capture effort uh, for for people across Europe and across the United States um, is is a really important place to start. Um, I don't know what Trump's relationships are with Russia. It certainly seems like there's more there than anybody sees. Um, and it's important to understand those because it is how the Russians control people. Well, I mean, when you say all that and then you think about having a secretary of state whose background is in, uh, you know, the, the petroleum business, uh, I mean, on the one hand, he might understand money 
the way that you just talked about money better than John Kerry ever did. The problem is, what does he do with that understanding? How does he process his understanding of that and turn it into policy? I mean, is he more or less comfortable with the way that you just described money being used? Certainly, he would have a better understanding of how the Russians use money and the way that money moves around, probably better than most of us do coming from the outside and not having billions of dollars of investment in Russia and with Russian partners, both in Russia and other places in the world. Um, but I think that's also the, the concern is that these are active, ongoing investments that a company he still has significant holdings in stands to gain billions and billions of dollars uh, if the policy toward Russia can be softened or if sanctions can be lifted. Um that's a significant political concern, and I'm sure he will be um, uh, grilled heavily during his confirmation hearings and before when he's doing his meetings on the Hill. Um, but, uh, you know, this is something that our Senate is really going to have to choose to care about and stand against. There's a lot of I, I'm sure there's a lot of concern about um, different cabinet appointments for different reasons. Um, and there, there will need to be attention on this one in particular if they want to try to um, bring some light to uh, what the policy might be and what the relationships are. Which brings me to the last thing I wanted to ask, which is, you know, is there is there anything representing a coherent, well-informed opposition? In other words, I don't know, our U.S. Senator from Connecticut, Chris Murphy, just had a piece, an op-ed piece in the Times about Syria and Syrian policy. But, I mean, in terms of who's going to ask those questions during the confirmation hearings and, let's say, a year and a half from now, it really turns out that, that the, the Trump administration doesn't know how to deal with this decentralized Cold War that Russia is fighting. Who, who is ready to explain it better to the American people and who is ready to, uh, who is able to, to begin developing a set of strategies that, that make more sense and address more uh, pertinently the situation that we find ourselves in? And <laughs> well, it was a really good question. I think we might have lost her. Oh, maybe we just had the, IS, the ISDN may have just dropped. All right. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to go to a break. Um, I think the answer to the question probably was, you know, maybe you really don't have anybody yet. I mean, that voice hasn't really emerged, say, from the Democratic policy establishment, uh, at least in terms of elected officials. Anyway, so I'll, I just answered my own question. We have a different kind of conversation we're going to have when we get back. Uh, it'll be about something that might seem a little bit more trivial, but I'm not sure it's that trivial. We're pretty sure that we just lost the ISDN. That's the studio-to-studio connection that we had uh, with uh, NPRDC. So it wasn't that Putin didn't like the question I was asking. Uh, I don't think FSB intervened and cut off the interview. Don't panic. I know we scared you a little bit in general with with that last interview. This will be a little less scary, but I think it's a, a subject really worth talking about, even though it begins with what looks on the surface like kind of a media tempest in a teapot. I think it's more than that. And to help us understand, joining us is Callum Borchers, uh, covers the intersection of politics and media for The Fix at The Washington Post and has been covering this story. Uh, welcome to the conversation. Great to be with you, Colin. Thanks did, for having me. Did I say your name okay? You got it. All right. Okay, good. Um, So um, uh, where to begin? Well, we have to begin on New Year's Eve. Uh, Something happened at Mar-a-Lago on New Year's Eve. Uh, And it's it's, uh, if you believe 
Joe Scarborough, he and Mika Brzezinski showed up there for the purpose of negotiating for uh, or trying to gain access to uh, President-elect Trump for some kind of very special interview. They weren't dressed for any particular party. They didn't attend any party, um, but that uh, some members of the media reported that they had. Uh, but it's it, it, it and then that well anyway we can sort of tell the story as we go along. So but that sort of that was sort of question one, right? Did they mingle? Did they? It's almost like a Bill Clinton question. It depends on what your definition of go to a party means. Exactly. Like, yeah. What what is the definition of the word to party or the verb to party? I should say because it, what what happened basically was what you said. He, he, Scarborough and Brzezinski show up at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, according to, to Scarborough, and there's no reason to doubt him that the purpose there was not to make a social call or, or to party, but it was there to, to try to pitch this idea of an interview because, of course, the uh, relationship between their program and Donald Trump has not been great for, for many months now. Um, now, it just so happened that at the same time there was a big New Year's Eve bash going on or at least starting to get underway. And, and the way that the original report in the New York Times phrased it was sort of very neutral, rather like there was a party and Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski were also there. That didn't really seem to bother Scarborough, but when Sopan Deb, uh, formerly of CBS News and, and soon to be of the New York Times, um, wrote that they had partied on Twitter, uh, he said they had partied with Donald Trump, that just sent Scarborough through the roof. Right. And in, in a way that seemed, I don't know, I mean, it's hard to say what's proportionate or normal behavior these days. But I mean, at least in a, the world I used to live in, uh, Scarborough's response seemed way over the top. I mean, he really attacked uh, Sopan Deb with all kinds of pretty denigrating language. He also got mad at Maggie, ha- Maggie Haberman at one point, uh, the, the re- lead reporter on the story for The New York Times, and said, you know, why didn't you check with me like a real journalist would, suggesting that she wasn't uh, a real journalist. I mean, his, his level of anger about this ordinarily what would happen is, I mean, look, you and I have been journalists for a long time. We make mistakes. Uh, you say something wrong. A person calls you up or whatever and says, that wasn't right. I would like a correction. you got to retract that, whatever. This wasn't like that. This was a public tantrum using very aggressive attack dog language uh, about something that would seem pretty trivial, like whether you were at a party or not. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, so to understand Scarborough's perspective, uh, and to be fair, he is understandably sensitive about this subject because uh, if you go back now, going back more than a year now, uh, during the Republican primary season, he and Mika Brzezinski were often accused by other people in the media of being too soft on Donald Trump. At that time, the relationship was pretty good. He was a frequent guest on their show. And in fact, in February, when Trump won the New Hampshire Republican primary and was a guest on the show the next day, he thanked them for being supporters. That was his term. Um, so that was sort of the, the backdrop. And keep in mind that Scarborough is not a journalist by trade. He's a former Republican member of Congress. Um, he's really more of an analyst now. So he, he's, I think also should be known that he should be held to maybe a slightly different standard. You know, his value uh, to MSNBC is for his experience and his political insight and partly his connections, which kind of you know, come out of having a good relationship with somebody like the Republican frontrunner for president. So that's all the backdrop. But he really didn't like the suggestion at the time that they were too close to Donald Trump. And, of course, it all became sort of moot, seemingly, when they had a big falling out, right? You know, Donald Trump uh, didn't disavow David Duke and his endorsement uh, from the KKK right away. 
Scarborough said that was disqualifying, and, you know, from then on it seemed like things were really, really bad. So <laughs> fast forward to New Year's Eve, and Sopan Deb tweets that uh, he had partied with Donald Trump, and all of those sort of same frustrations that Scarborough had months ago about being accused of being too cozy with Donald Trump come roaring back. So that's the backdrop. Understandable that he is sensitive to it. Um, but as you said, Colin, you know, the response seemed a little bit over the top, and that was what uh, took uh, caught my eye. And the reason I think this matters uh, for your listeners, Colin, is because the other backdrop here is that we in the press are really fighting for our reputations right now, right? I mean, we have a president-elect um, who is actively trying to undermine our collective credibility. He's out there telling uh, people that you should not believe what you read or see in the news. Um, the press is lying to you, uh, and they are pushing fake news, right? We're having this conversation about what really is fake news, you know, stuff that's made up out of thin air in Macedonia and posted on these pretend news sites and, and you know, then being circulated on Facebook and Twitter. We're trying to deal with that issue. And then you also have people like Trump and sites like Breitbart trying to muddy the waters by just taking any legitimate news report that they don't like and calling that fake news. So all of this is going on at the same time. And what I think is potentially problematic for the press is when you have people within the media. So somebody like Joe Scarborough, who is now part of the media, is out there. And he's not just saying, hey, Sopan, I think this was a big misunderstanding. Yes, I was in attendance while a party was going on, but I wasn't there to party. You know, I was there to have a meeting with the president-elect to try to pitch an interview. He didn't explain that right away. Instead, he said, you're pushing fake news, you're lying, you're making bleep up out of thin air. You're a hack. Really, the word hack was used. Uh, exactly. And so to me, uh, and of course, you know, Scarborough may, may not care about this, and perhaps why should he? Because as I said, he, he's not a journalist by trade. But um, I do think that it is not constructive for the media, as I said, when we're trying to uh, make people – uh, feel confident that they can trust what they're getting from us. I don't think it, it helps that effort if you have a, a, a prominent uh, political commentator on MSNBC saying, hey, this reporter uh, who covered the campaign for CBS and is about to start covering the news for the New York Times is a hack. He makes stuff up. You can't trust what he's saying, um, which really isn't a fair thing to do, right? I mean, it, it, it seemed like Deb was indeed mistaken, but it was a simple misunderstanding. I mean, it was a logical conclusion uh, to think, oh, look, there's a photograph of Joe Scarborough at a New Year's Eve party hosted by Donald Trump. I mean, the logical conclusion is he was partying with, with Donald Trump. Um, so if that wasn't the case, I, I think Scarborough obviously was well within bounds to set the record straight. Um, but it was just the way in which he did that um, that I think is disconcerting for, for people in the press. Um, and I think that it's something that sort of touched a nerve. I mean, afterwards you saw uh, Chuck Todd, of course, who's the, the host of Meet the Press. Oh, good. We're getting uh, to the, you're getting to the about, passive-aggressive Chuck Todd tweet. Oh, good. Yeah, right. Exactly. He's tweeting about, you know, it's, it, it's, I don't remember exactly what the phrasing was, but about, you know, it's not you know, helpful to have people within the, the media fighting each other like this. 
Right. And it was sort of, you, depending on how you interpreted this whole fiasco, you could have read the tweet a couple of different ways. But I think most people were looking at it as saying that he wasn't really appreciative of his fellow NBC employee, uh, Scarborough, you know, ripping these other people to shreds. And you've got this stuff. It does get a little silly. I think it, Maggie Haberman at one point had a tweet, uh, maybe it was a response to somebody else's tweet. I can't remember saying, well, did did they did they mingle with guests? You know, did they make small talk with anybody? Because at that point, you know, they are sort of attending the party, even if that wasn't the plan and even if they weren't dressed right, which they keep emphasizing. But Kyle, right. I have all kinds of you can almost, you know, bill me for therapy for the next five minutes of our conversation because, <laughs> like, I have a lot of problems with this. First of all, um, you know, as you were saying, Joe Scarborough isn't really a journalist. You know, he's a former congressman who has a somewhat influential uh, morning show on MSNBC. Um, but he's also one of those guys who puts that title on and takes it off uh, to suit himself. So he has an op-ed piece in The Washington Post about this whole mess. And at one point, he's just talking about the issue of access, which is sort of what they traffic in anyway. This is a show that's about the get. It's about the access much more than it is about the substantive set of questions that either will or won't be asked. And at one point, he actually compares himself to Edward R. Murrow. That was the point where I started to throw up in my mouth. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, if you're if you're not a journalist, then don't compare yourself to Edward R. Murrow and Tom Friedman and David Brooks and whoever else he compared himself to. Um, because to me, this th- therein lies the problem. This is the reason I think he was so petulant in his response to this is that it's not just about Trump. People's suspicions about this show are that it's a beltway echo chamber that has a lot to do with just getting access to certain people. Uh, I remember watching years ago after he became a movie industry lobbyist, uh, an appearance by Chris Dodd talking about the anti-piracy acts. And at the end, Miko Brzezinski said, our love to Jackie, who is the name of Dodd's wife. And I thought, journalists don't say that. You say that if that's somebody you go to Georgetown dinner parties with, you know, and to me, that's what Scarborough is reacting to. The notion that really, ultimately, that is who he is. The guy who shows up and makes small talk and has a, you know, has a, and he in his, his, see, I am, I'm ranting here. But in his piece in the Washington Post, he said, well, yeah, he's also met Trump for an off the record dinner to kind of, you know, feel him out about the kinds of things they'll be talking about in the future. That's the thing that he's reacting to is what is his exact role as a journalist in the Trump era, uh, an era that he seems actually ideally suited for. Okay, you just I'll just make a copay now and, you know. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll bill you afterwards. Uh, no, I think, you're, I think you're absolutely right, though, Colin, about the lack of clarity. And I think that is what can be frustrating to, uh, well, other people in the media can be frustrating to viewers when they don't necessarily know exactly what they're getting. Now, I'll give you a, a different example. I mean, I, I certainly have written uh, rather critically at times during the campaign about Sean Hannity. Uh, but I will say this for him. Um, I think that he, for the most part, was relatively transparent about uh, his role uh, during the campaign, which was, I'm here to be a cheerleader for Republican candidates. And of course, later, specifically for Donald Trump, he was serving as informal advisor to Donald Trump. I think you kind of knew what you were getting. Yeah, when you're flying, um, when you're flying Mike Pence him. around in your private plane to one of his right. meetings, uh, you, you pretty much 
ha- have solved that mystery. What's your role? Exactly. And, and, and there's a market for that, right? I mean, his, his audience uh, absolutely eats that stuff up. So, so that's one thing. So you can, you can say that it's, it's, it's lousy and it's not uh, journalism all you want. In fact, he would tell you, I'm not a journalist, I'm a talk show host. That was sort of his excuse throughout the campaign, which maybe is kind of a get-out-of-jail-free card, and, and you might not like it. But, but just as a contrast, as you said, the, the, the challenge with, uh, with the, the setup that Joe Scarborough has uh, put himself in is, is it, there seems to be um, a sense that at times he is operating in a journalistic role, and at other times he is operating as kind of a beltway insider. Uh, and perhaps those two can coexist, but it is a blurry line. And, uh, you know, the value, it, it, it seems like if he he might get less scrutiny, I'll, I'll put it this way, he might let get less scrutiny from fellow media personalities um, if he just more fully embraced the idea that, yeah, guess what? You know, I'm not a reporter. I don't do the whole objective thing. Uh, my job is to get access. Uh, so, you know, guess what? If I've got a good relationship with the president-elect, and that means I get to go have dinner with him, and I get to show up at his New Year's Eve party to pitch an interview, uh, that's good for me. And guess what, viewers? It's good for you, too, because it means that I will learn things that I can then pass along to you. And don't bother me with this whole, you know, high and, you know, high horse standard of, of you know, what a journalist or reporter ought to do, because I'm not going to hold myself to that standard, and, and neither should you. Uh, Callum Borchers, uh, great to talk to you. Callum Borchers covers uh, the intersection of politics and the media, which is exactly what this is, for The Fix at The Washington Post. Thanks for being with us today. Good to be with you. All right. And so we're going to take a little break right now. If there's something that uh, you need to talk about, I'm trying to budget a little time here on some of our scramble uh, shows so that you can call in at 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. I'm going to say a little bit uh, on the other side of this break about um, ways in which average citizens can make their own uh, views about things known at a time when they're very anxious. All right, uh, but, you know, call in about anything. 860-275-7266. I did not mingle with that woman at that party. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf. Our interns are Clingy Fisher and Needy Fisher. The part of Bill Curry was played by Tom Friedman. Follow our backstage antics at the Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page and find new and old episodes at wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, we'll re-air our full show interview with Vin Baker, the NBA all-star who lost a fortune and then found God and Starbucks. And now... Back to Colin. It's a really nice conversation with Vin. Uh, I am going to be on a special mission uh, to New York, which I'll probably talk about later. Uh, All right. So um, we do have time for some calls, 860-275-7266. I'm really interested, actually, in the function of protest um, in the ensuing year or so. There's a terrific piece by Jelani Cobb uh, in The New Yorker. By the way, just in terms of kind of uh, backstage stuff, which we don't share with you that much. But if you ever wondered, like, who's the person you've invited on the show the most? or tried to invite on the show the most without getting any result whatsoever. I think Jelani Cobb is the correct answer to that question. I think we have put more feelers out to Jelani Cobb about various things because we were great admirers of him. And until for a while, he was also teaching at the University of Connecticut. I think he moved over to Columbia now. But 
Anyway, we're always asking Jelani Khan on the show. I'm not even sure he even answers the emails, but if he does, he answers them now. So anyway, um, that's neither here nor there. But anyway, he has a really interesting piece about protests. He says movements are born in the moments when abstract principles become concrete concerns. Move on arose in response to what was perceived as the Republican congressional overreach that resulted in the impeachment of Bill Clinton. The Occupy movement was backlash to the financial crisis. Um, the message of Black Lives Matter was inspired by the death of Trayvon Martin and the unrest in Ferguson. Uh, Occupy's version of anti-corporate populism helped create the climate in which Senator Bernie Sanders' insurgent campaign could not only exist, but essentially shape the Democratic Party platform. Uh, Black Lives Matter brought a national attention to local instances of police brutality, prompting the Obama administration to launch the Task Force on 21st Century Policing. Uh, uh, anyway, he, anyway, he goes on. But anyway, the point is, this may be a time when, in a very interesting way, Politics moves back out into the streets. We already have uh, the Women's March on Washington coming the day after the inauguration. Um, and, and I think you will there – there are – I think Cobb points this out in his piece. There's like a lot of other groups that have applied for permits already. And I don't think you've seen the biggest wave of this. I'd love to hear from somebody who's going to the Women's March. And we also will have people on after the, on the Monday after the Women's March to talk about what that was like. But uh, our number, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. I'll tell you a really quick story. Which So I teach a course at Trinity called uh, Modern Media and the presidential campaign. I teach it every four years. So we cover a presidential campaign in real time. Uh, we learn about it. Um, this year at the end of the course, of course, I said you should go and ask for your money back because almost everything I taught you about turned out not to be correct. Um, like we did a whole segment on data journalism and Nate Silver and stuff like that. <laughs> what a waste of time that was. Uh, fact-checking. We did a whole segment about fact-checking. Anyway, um, what was the point uh, point of what I was telling you about? Oh, so at the end we do, we do this kind of simulation, and the simulation is uh, of um, uh, the campaign coming four years from now. So we were doing a simulation of the 2020 campaign. Uh, we had them design media strategies for two actual real-life politicians who could conceivably run for president if the opportunity presented itself. It was Kristen Gillibrand on the Democratic side and Ben Sass on the Republican side. Anyway, one of the part of the fact pattern that I set up just so that they would have something to strategize about or off of was that because of an overreach on Medicare, uh, in particular, there was something called the Geezer's March on Washington, which set records for, you know, I mean, everybody in their 50s who was pay were paying into the system and, and the people who were already on the system rebelled against this voucher program uh, and more people showed up in Washington than ever had for any other protest. I, I put the Geezer's March on Washington and the notion of geezer power uh, into this fact pattern, A, because it was funny, but also because I really believe something like that can happen, uh, that one of the ways in which you will see reactions if there is overreach uh, will be from large-scale demonstrations. I don't know how big the women's uh, march is going to be, but uh, but I bet it'll be big. And and nothing has really happened yet. In other words, this guy hasn't really been sworn in yet. Uh, he will have been sworn in for less than 24 hours when the march arrives. And as Cobb points out, it's really going to be the things that happen 
uh, that that will build even bigger kinds of demonstrations. Things actually really have to happen. All right, right. We're going to run out of time really fast. So before I go to the f- calls here, um, I first of all want to c- congratulate our own Kion Wolf. Yesterday represented uh, ten years uh, of involvement and service and uh, and excellence uh, for WNPR. That's how long she's been here on the premises. Uh, also, want to mention that on Thursday of this week, we're doing kind of an odd thing. We're we're You know, there's a lot of you who listen to a rebroadcast at 8 o'clock at night. You might be listening right now to an 8 to 9 p.m. broadcast. That's always a replay. Uh, On Thursday night, we're going to be live. We're going to do the news live at 8 p.m. I don't know why anyone would care about this but uh, besides us, but we do. So if you're an 8 p.m. listener, you'll get the first crack at it. You'll hear the fresh live broadcast, and then we'll put the uh, replay on at 1 p.m. on Friday. So uh, just a little something for you to look forward to. All right, here is Cassandra. Uh, I apologize that our time is limited, but Cassandra, I think, who is involved uh, in the Women's Washington March. Uh, hi, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So if somebody's listen listening and they're just hearing about this, I mean, first of all, give a 30-second description about what's supposed to happen. Well, the Women's March on Washington is a rally, and it's not a protest. It's in support of the people who are most vulnerable Uh in the upcoming election, it's in response to the hateful rhetoric that's been going around. And um, it's just to gather at this point in support of, you know, African-Americans and Muslim people, LGBT, certainly women and women's rights, and all the other people who, through rhetoric and uh, intended cabinet appointments, are, I mean, are showing that they're going to really strip away a lot of human rights. and. You know, we're just gathering together to to support each other. And, you know, I'm hoping this is the start of a movement, you know, not a thing in and of itself. You know, you mentioned many of the groups that have been working in in the streets so far. And in in my opinion, the incoming administration does not have a mandate um, that if all these groups, you know, Black Lives Matters and Occupy and, and all the other amazing groups start working together, now, there's a lot more of us, and we can do a lot of really great things. And I'm hoping this is one symbolic start for all of that. Um, very quickly, I know there are buses leaving from Connecticut, uh, some of them leaving on Friday or Friday night. Uh, if somebody wants to get on a bus and go to Washington, how do they find out about that? How do they do that? Um, unfortunately, I believe the buses um, for the organized are closed at this point. Um, there are a number of sister rallies that people can look into. Certainly Boston, New York City, I believe Stanford, Connecticut is having one here. There's going to be a lot more stuff happening locally, you know, going forward as well. Um, People can get down there on their own. We have a good 80 buses from Connecticut. We're looking at a good 40,000. That's a lot. All right. We have, to, we have to stop there, Cassandra. I'm being told also that uh, Mitt Romney will strap you to the top of uh, his car and drive you down there. So only maybe one lucky person can do that. But anyway, all right. Thanks so much for everything today. And thanks for calling in. And we'll be back with Vin Baker tomorrow and some exciting stuff on Thursday. Oh, yeah.